Well, good morning. You awake today? All right. Yeah, a little dreary morning, but like, hey, free water. I was happy for that. Well, my name's Joel. I'm one of the team members here at Rocky Peak, and we're going to jump into our time of teaching. And so today we're stepping back into the series that we started months ago, I think. I don't, it's hard to keep track in our series how long we've been doing them, but we go for a while, don't we? <laughs> So today we're jumping back into this, this letter that we have in our Bibles, the 66 books that we have collected, this letter called Romans, and it's written by one of the early Christian leaders, a guy named Paul. He was one of the, the apostles, one of the representatives of Jesus, and Jesus met Paul, changed his life, and he's like, Paul, I'm going to use you to tell the message of me to the world as you know it. And so Paul was faithful in following that, and so much of what we have in our Bibles, especially the second half of the New Testament, is Paul writing letters and teaching to the first Christians so they understand this hope they have in Jesus. And because of what Paul's written, we have these words of hope for our lives today. And so we're going like, to jump back into this, and what, what Paul has been doing in writing this letter is he's introducing himself to this Christian community that had been living in Rome in the first century, because Paul's intention is to come and visit them, spend time together, and then he wants to pass through Rome and go on some new missionary ventures. And so Paul's reminding them, helping them understand the gospel, the hope of what they, they have discovered and who Jesus is. And so this series, we're calling it The Gospel of God, because this is what Paul's unpacking in the book of Romans. And, and so if you've been aware of this or part of this, you know that gospel is this word that means good news. And it's the good news of what God is up to, what God has done, how God has moved in history, how Jesus has come into the story to meet us right where we're at in the mess and brokenness of this world and to rescue us, restore us, give us new life. Forgiveness is in his name. We have hope in life because of him. That's like with the songs that we sang just a moment ago were all declarations of the hope of this gospel. It is good news. But the reason it's good news is because there's some bad news. And that is not always fun to talk about. And yet, if we wanna understand why the good news is so good, we have to have a clear understanding of what isn't right, the bad news that is out there. And so for the next several weeks, we're gonna be moving into some deeper waters as we work our way through Romans chapter one and a lot of the things that Paul is writing here. And I just, I want you to be ready because it's going to get uncomfortable. Because, you know, like if you go to the doctor and he's like, hey, we need to talk, that's not like a woohoo conversation. That's like, okay, like, like what, what's happening kind of scenario. And, and we're going to be challenged with what we see Paul writing and what Paul's talking about. And we're even going to wrestle with it. And it is certainly not going to sit well with our culture's modern sensibilities. But here's what I want to encourage us as we go into these weeks Let's not make the mistake of missing what God has for us simply because we may not like it at face value. Like, let's not be quick to dismiss what this is because it seems uncomfortable. Let's choose to wrestle with these things so we don't miss what God has for us, the gospel. And so let's pray as we go into this time and we get ready to see what God has for us today. And so Lord, we want to come before you, and, and like that song that we declared, that yours is the name above all names, that you're, you're, you're our Savior, you're our Lord, like we look to you to guide and lead us, to rescue us. And, and so today, as we, as we lean in and listen to the things that are being taught about reality, don't let us miss what you have for us, that there's, there's hope even in the difficult conversation, because you've shown up to meet us in those places. And so give us ears to hear the things that you have for us. Give us eyes to see what you want to do, what you're calling us more deeply into. And, and so we just want to pause in this moment and acknowledge that you are king. So speak, because yours are the words of life. Amen, amen. So let's jump into Romans chapter one. We're going to be picking it up in verse 18. Don't you love that we're still in Romans one and we've been in this series for like, like weeks now. And just so you know, we're gonna be in Romans 1 for a little bit longer. Uh, and it's kind of like, 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 the reason why is like, let's, let's treat this like, like what it is. It's like a fine wine. We wanna savor it. It's not like we're just drinking Capri Sun here. We wanna, we wanna like make our way through it. If you like Capri Sun, talk to me after it. I'll apologize. But you know, like we wanna just, we don't wanna miss what's going on here because it's heavy, but there's, there's hope in these words. And so we're gonna jump in and, and right out of the gate, you're gonna see what I mean about uncomfortable. So here's Paul, Romans 1.18, and he says this. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
Because let's pray and go home. Like, like what? I don't know. Like, you look at this and you're like, well, wrath. That doesn't sound good. Like, and it's never a good day when you're under someone's wrath. Wrath in the Greek is this word orge. It means anger, upset. I'm, I'm not happy with what's going on here. And so it's like, that's never a good day. But then to be like under the wrath of God, that's especially not a good day. And I think that we wrestle with this and we can struggle with this. Like we might even balk at this, at what Paul's saying here, because at one level it might, it might sound like this sounds wrong. Like because this isn't, like God is love. Like that's like, we read that in the scriptures. So like what do you mean that God, God's angry and upset? As if somehow in our minds we think those are mutually exclusive ideas. Like is it not possible that God could be loving and still have anger? But I think we wrestle with this because I'm like, God's love. And so I think we have like maybe a more of a modern definition of love. And we try to put that definition on God instead of letting God define what love is and tell us. And so I think for many of us, when we say, no, God is love, like, so what do we mean by that? Like, do you think that means that like, like God is therefore permissive? Like, hey, I know that's destructive and wrong and it's not healthy, but you know, wink, wink, go for it. Like, because I don't think that's what love would do. Love would say, hey, that's not healthy. Let me show you something better. But I think we wrestle because we're trying to make sense of this thing of wrath, and, but you're, you're a God of love. And, and I think wrath can sometimes, as we play with it, because we don't always understand it well, like, like, Paul, what do you mean, like, God's wrath from heaven's being revealed? Like, I wrestle with this because when you talk about wrath, it it's almost seems like, Paul, you're, you're, like, making God out to be like a cosmic monster, like, just waiting to get us, or, or like, God's some kind of, like, dysfunctional or even abusive parent. And so I think this is why we wrestle with what Paul's talking here, because we're trying to make sense of this, and, and yet let's not dismiss it simply because we might find it bothersome. Let's ask questions. Like, let's wrestle with what Paul's saying. So Paul, why are you saying God's wrath is being revealed? Like, what's the reason he's telling us this? Like, God's upset because there's something wrong. And what is he upset with? Who? Who? Is he upset with? Yeah. With our bad being. Like he's upset with us not doing life the way we're meant to. And like, how is he describing it? He's upset because of our godlessness and our wickedness. And those are heavy words. I think we need to, when we really understand the weight of those words, you can be like, I think I might understand why he's upset. Like, so godlessness doesn't mean I didn't go to church today and God's angry with me. Like, no, God, godlessness is like this idea, like, God, I was created in your image to belong to you and to reflect you in this world, and I just defy that. I throw off my identity. I don't want to belong to you. I want to be God. It's like us giving God the middle finger and saying, we will be God. We don't need you. So it's a pretty defiant posture towards God. But then he describes this thing called wickedness, and that's not just a Broadway musical, like he's talking about like the destructive nature of the human race. Do you remember last century? Some of you weren't born yet, but some of us lived last century. Some of you, do you remember what happened last century over that, the course of that hundred years? Like it was a very dark year for the, dark century for the human race. Like, like they, they say statistically speaking, more humans killed humans in that century than perhaps the entire human race up to that century. Like, it's insane what we did to one another. And there's this darkness and this wickedness that takes place in the human race. It's things like war. It's things like genocide. It's things like apartheid. It's things like racism. It's things like rape. It's things like murder. It's wickedness. And so you look at that and you're like, um, like, so God, maybe at some level you are right to be upset when you see these things. And I think one of the reasons we wrestle with the idea of God's wrath, I think it might actually have more to do with our own dysfunctional relationship with wrath, like with our own wrath. Like how many of you would say, I am really good at wrath, <laughs> right? Like I don't mean you get angry. Getting angry doesn't mean you're good at wrath. It just means you, right, like, like I don't know, like, I, like whenever I have applied at a job or something on my resume, skills, wrath. Right? You're like, oh, so if something goes wrong in the office, we're going to unleash Joel. This is awesome, right? Like, like wrath, like our, our wrath, like I don't know if we often know what to do with it. It's why James will write, Jesus' half-brother in one of his letters, in his letter in James chapter 1, he says that man's anger, it's the same word, orge, wrath, man's anger does not produce the righteous life God desires for us. And I, I know I wrestled with this in my own journey. I remember years ago I was at the county fair, 
And I'm just kind of walking through the area where there's all the concessions and the carnival games. And, and I just noticed as I'm just kind of walking, I see this younger kid in front of me. I'm like in my late teens. And I see this kid like 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe just my best guess. And, and I can tell he's walking with great intention and purpose. And he's holding two hot cups of coffee in his hands. I can just see the steam rising from him. And he's like, he's like on a mission to like get through the spot. And as I just kind of, I just see him and I'm like, oh, okay, kid with coffee. I see one of the, the carnies off on like the game booth. And it's the one with the softballs where you're trying to knock down like the metal milk jugs. It's like a rig game you can never win. But you, have you ever played that one? That's, okay, that's why God's angry because of the carnival games, right? Um, <laughs> but I'm watching this and I see the guy at the booth notice the kid and he's like, hey, kid. And he, he like pretends like he's going to throw the softball at the kid. And the kid believes the guy's really going to throw it. He doesn't understand that would be felony assault, so the guy's not going to really do it. But the kid believes it, and he flinches in the moment, and the coffee spills, and it kind of burns his hand. He's like, ah, and I hear his voice. Mr. Please, my dad sent me to get these coffees, please. And I don't, like, in that moment, I identified so deeply with him because here's a young boy trying to demonstrate that he can be a man. Father has sent me on a mission, and I am going to demonstrate that I'm responsible and capable. Women, I know you have your own journey of like childhood into adulthood, what that looks like for you, but for a young man to demonstrate his, like his ability, that's a powerful moment and opportunity, and this guy is taking it from him. And so I noticed like the guy just gets this like wicked grin on his face and he's just laughing. He's like, and he keeps throwing, like pretending he's going to throw it. And the kid keeps flinching until eventually the coffee's just hit his hands and he can't hold it. And he just drops them both on the ground and he breaks down crying and runs off in the crowd. I am angry when I see this because I really, like he is just devastated, this young boy trying to be, like he's a masculine, like there's just so much in that that's wrong in what he's done. And I'm just filled with this rage and I don't know what to do with it. This is what I wanted to do with my wrath. I wanted to take my money, put it on the counter at the carnival game, take the three balls and then bludgeon this dude. <laughs> but I just walked off angry and confused with what to do with it because I don't know how to handle wrath. Now, years later, looking back on that moment, like, I think this is what wisdom and maybe would have been the proper response. If I could have found that kid and been like, little dude, like I get it, like that, that was wrong. Hey, let's go get more coffee and I will walk with you past the guy so you can give it to your dad. Like that would have been a great response. But you don't think clearly as a dysfunctional human being when you're full of anger, right? And so like, I think we don't always know what to do. But listen, is how I felt, was that right? Yeah this was wrong. I just didn't know what to do with it. So our wrath isn't the problem, it's our dysfunction. So now imagine a being who is perfectly holy good, who has zero dysfunctions. God actually knows how to handle wrath. God knows what to do with wrath. And so wrath isn't the problem. The problem is we don't know what to do with it. So when God gets angry, God's wrath is his good response to what is wrong. Like God knows what to do with it. And like, could you imagine this? Like, like, like God, you're, all, you're powerful and you're good and you're strong. If that person in position of authority never dealt with injustice, we would not think that was a good person. So like, God, we need you to be good to deal with it. The problem is I'm part of it, right? And so this is the wrestle. You know, and so like God's, God's wrath is his good response to what's wrong. And what's wrong we are. And why? Because we are suppressing the truth about God. God, I don't want to believe what is real about you. I don't want to trust you. I don't want to follow you. I'm going to take it, everything about who you said. I'm just going to push it down and make up my own things. And you know the scary thing about suppressing the truth about God? A natural consequence of that is that we begin to suppress the truth about ourselves. Because we can really only truly understand who we are in light of who God is. And when we suppress the truth about ourselves, we get confused about who we are and even how we are. And so it's this, this thing. And I don't know about you, but like, I've noticed that like, we tend to be naturally good at suppressing this stuff. Like, did anyone have to teach you to do that in your own story? Like when you got caught or busted or you did something, like anyone have to teach you, like, here's how you lie and deceive them. Like we just like, oh, like somehow we just can play this game. I remember... Um, 
a couple of weeks ago watching on like the reels on Instagram, this, this dad had posted this video of him, him confronting his little daughter because she had done something she shouldn't have done. And so he's just talking to her. And so apparently like she took her Barbies and she had just painted them all with nail polish inside the house and like got stuff on the, the carpet over. And so the dad's like, hey, like we've talked about this, like, like you're not supposed to like paint your Barbies and you did it in the house. We talked about doing nail polish outside and he's like, so what happened? And I just love that he's like filming this and then he posted on the World Wide Web. Like, good parenting moment, right? But her response was fascinating. Oh, I know, but, but Barbie said like a hundred times, she said, I was supposed to do it. Like that's her, like, that's, that's, that's her, like she's, and he just keeps like just gently walking her through like, but you know that we talked about it. But Barbie said a hundred times. And it was like, she's sticking to her guns. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this is fascinating. And then I just stopped and I'm like, God, is this, is this what I'm like with you? Like, Joel, why did you do that? Because they told me a hundred times. I'm supposed to do it this way. And it's like, this is just the dance that we're in. And it's, a, it's bothersome, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. This is why I think actually for a lot of people, the idea of talking about God isn't just, I don't like it. It's a deeply uncomfortable conversation. Because if God is real, if God exists, there's implications to what that means for us, doesn't it? Like C.S. Lewis captures this brilliantly in his book, Mere Christianity. Look at what he says about this, this idea that if God exists and God is good, what that might mean for us. So there on the screens, you can follow along. He says, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. Why? Because the monsters win. If there is no one making sure that there will be justice in the ultimate sense, then the monsters win. He goes, but if it is, if it is governed by an absolute goodness, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it and we have reacted the wrong way way. That's heavy. And so here's Paul. Hey, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be plain, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Like Paul's saying, hey, it's possible that there are things that we can actually know about God. And the interesting implication of that, if I can know something about God, that means that I can intuitively know that I guess God must exist. And so he continues and he says, so what are these things? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so Paul's saying there's things that we can know about God, even though we've suppressed the truth about him, as we look at this world that we live in, these invisible qualities that we can see, meaning that as we begin to understand these qualities that can be discovered, oh, there must be a God. God must be real. And so what are these qualities? He he talks about two categories, eternal power and divine nature. And so this is what he's trying to, so eternal power is the concept of agency, Like as we look at the the world that we live in, there's a sense that we can see that God has moved or God has done something, like he's he's acted. And then his divine nature, that as we look again at the world, there's a sense that we can have some sense of God's character, what he's like as we look at this world. And yet Paul says they're invisible. Then how can we see him, Paul? Well, one, he's kind of speaking like just language, right? But at the same time, it's like, oh, I know, I can think of at least one thing that I've never seen, but I know it's real. The wind. Like, I've never seen the wind, but I know when it's blowing. I've seen the effects of the wind. And I think this is like, like the similar idea, what Paul's saying here. Like, hey, you may not be able to see God, but you can see the effects of God. 
as we look at the created world. And so let's chase this. Let's, let's wrestle with this. Let's chase after this idea like, okay, what, how can we maybe see these two things that Paul's talking about as we look at what has been made, as we look at the universe? Maybe we can see what we can discover about God. So if the wind is blowing, what does it reveal? And so there in your message notes, the answer is blowing in the wind. You got it. Yeah, the next service is when our younger people will be here. I'm going to have to explain that one to them. <laughs> but as we look at these, these two ideas, what do we discover? So the answer blowing in this first idea, God's eternal power. And so that word power, dynamos is the Greek word. Can you think of an English word that we got from that Greek word? Yeah, dynamite, another deep cut reference if you know that one. So like, let's say if, if you were to go somewhere and like dynamite had exploded and gone off and you walk in in the aftermath, you'd be like, something happened. Right, like that's the idea. So God, like as we look at the, the universe, it's like, okay, so, something happened. And so we can ask the question, hey, so what's behind it? Like what's behind the universe? Is it just nothing or is there a causal agent? And by that, I mean something with intelligence that made it happen. And, and I think we intuit this whenever we speculate about the origins of life and we ask this question there on your notes. Where did it all come from? That's a brilliant question to ask. Kids ask this question not because they're dumb. They ask this question because they're smart. And they haven't embraced bad philosophies that have told them not to ask this question. So kids just naturally ask this question. And you know what's interesting about this question? It flies in the face of what we would call naturalism. So naturalism is, is a worldview. So if you were a part of the worldview series at the beginning of the year, we talked some about this. But naturalism is a worldview that says this, all that exists is the natural world. And so the implications of that, then the only things that we could ever know are what we can discover through our five senses. So that's what naturalism would say. So that's the only, only possible ways. So according to naturalism, by default, God cannot exist. Because by definition, God is supernatural. And so a naturalistic worldview isn't even open to the possibility that there could be something that exists beyond its own perspective. And so naturalism is the worldview that is often hiding behind modern science. But here's what we need to understand. Naturalism is not science. Naturalism is the philosophical position that often gets confused or conflated with science. And if we can begin to, to separate or delineate those two, we could actually approach science without being stuck by a worldview that limits the reality of what we're pursuing. And so here's what's cool. Considering, if you're just willing to consider the possibility of God's existence, that is not in contravention to or opposition against science. Like you don't have to choose between faith in God or belief in science. Like you can actually have both. And here's the thing, science is amazing. Like, thank God for science. Like, the science that we've discovered and the things that we've done have propelled us into such greater places. Like, I have a phone in my pocket. Thank you, science, for helping create that. We have medicines and all sorts of things. Thank goodness not we're not living 300 years ago. The science back then was leeches. Like, I'm grateful for science, right? But here's the thing, science has limitations. And so let me just give you two. Two things that science cannot do. Here's the first one. Science cannot disprove God's existence. And here's why. If God exists, God exists beyond the realm or arena of science. Right? Because God, by definition, is what? Supernatural. And what science can do, however, is discover if there is evidence of God's existence or activity within nature. And so we can apply science to our world and ask the question, hey, is there something else that makes sense of what we're looking at? Now, as we begin to like wrestle with this, Christians are sometimes labeled as being anti-scientific whenever we make the claim, God did it. Now, I don't think that's a false claim by any means. But I think sometimes we're too quick to not have an answer for something and we just, we just throw in, well, God did it, instead of saying, yes, but let's maybe explore how God could have done that. And so whenever we do this, like the, the critique that's often given is what is called the God of the gaps critique. It's like, oh, you're just, you're, you're just not willing to chase how, and so you just throw it, whenever there's a gap in your knowledge, you just throw God in there to make sense of it. 
And so it's used as kind of like a, a, a mean critique of that. You know, so for instance, you go back to like the ancient Vikings, right? And so they're trying to make sense, like what's causing the lightning and the thunder? And the answer for them was Chris Hemsworth, right? Like <laughs> Thor was the answer. But now we are scientifically more advanced and we understand both thunder and lightning from a scientific perspective, so we don't need Chris Hemsworth anymore, right? But here's the thing, just discovering how something works doesn't disprove or dismiss God. So I don't know how my car works. Like I have zero mechanical skills. When, when my daughter forgets to put gas in it or it's not working, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so, like I, so there's times I have to take my car to the mechanic. Now I talk with my mechanic. My mechanic knows how my car works. They can explain everything about the engine and all the things that are going on. And so if I get a good explanation from my mechanic, wouldn't it be silly for me to say, now I don't need the engineers anymore. I don't need the designer. I have the me mechanical explanation for the car. So there is no need for a designer who created the car. Like that doesn't follow, right? Like, like the more I understand how the car works, the more appreciation I have for the person who made the car and designed the car. And when those two things are working together, we discover beautiful things. See, now, here's something else that science cannot do, the second thing. Science cannot explain itself. Here's what I mean by that. Here's something really cool about science, all right? For science to work, it presupposes some important things. So science is dependent upon what we might say the intelligibility of the universe. Meaning that as we look, we can know things about reality. We can know things about the universe. We can discover things. For the scientific method to work, the universe has to have structure and order in it. Otherwise, we could never do it. If the universe was just constantly in flux and changing, we couldn't do science. So science presupposes that there's structure, there's order in the universe. That's the reason our science works. But if we were to say, well, because there is order and structure in the universe, science works, it begs the question. And the question is, where did that order and structure come from that allows us to do science? And if the answer is, it just happened, well, that's not very scientific. That's actually science of the gaps. Oh, turnabout is fair play. <laughs> but if we say it just happened, that's also not very comprehensible because the implication of saying it just happened is that we're saying it came from nothing. And if we're saying that, what comes from nothing? No nothingness. Just try to see your bank account grow all by itself. It doesn't work, right? Like from nothing, nothing comes. But even so, it's more incomprehensible because Random chaos over time, no matter how much time, does not create order. If you have teenagers, you understand how true that is. <laughs> so when my girls were little, we, we loved doing Legos together. And so I, like, at birthdays and Christmas was always fun. And so like, we would have like, this fun Lego building party. And so we would build like the Princess Castle or Rapunzel's Tower. And I was constantly trying to explain to them there's another castle that's a globe and it lives in the sky and is a prince named Vader who had a daughter, Princess Leia. Can we get that castle? And they're like, no, dad, we don't. So I was like, all right, fine. We'll just stay over here. But every time we would get the new Lego set, we would sit down, we'd open it up and we would put the Legos in order. We'd follow the plan and we would build a castle. Can you imagine what it, what, how frustrating it would have been for my daughter? So I'm like, okay, we got the Legos. So we just kind of bundle them in a pile. I throw them on the floor in their room. I take our cats. I throw them in their room and I close the door and say, hey, girls, and we'll come back in a little while and we'll have a castle. Like, it doesn't matter how much time we give. There's not, a castle's not going to happen from that, right? Like the cats, we might have a, a, a lot of cats and the Legos will be a litter box, but we're not going to get a castle, right? Because there's something about this structure. There's an order to it that allows us to have a castle, and we look at the order and the structure. And so what happens then if, if we're looking at our universe and we're asking this question, like we approach it from the scientific mind of saying, how, how do we do this? How do we, what do we find in our universe? What do we discover? And here's some of the things that we've been discovering. For the universe to function as it is, there are some incredible things that had to come together in a very precise order and continue to work together in very precise ways for life to exist. 
And so these are what cosmologists and physicists have discovered, and they refer to them as fundamental constants or universal constants. But the word constant is key to the understanding of them because these things have to remain in a very finely defined parameter for things to have worked the way they do and for things to continue to work. Like these constants are so or precisely set that if they varied even in the slightest, there would be no life in the universe. So here's just an example of a couple of them. There's like 26 or so that we've discovered so far, but here's the one. The one would be called the gravitational constant. And so this is what determines the force of gravity, right? So, so gravity is a good thing, right? But too much gravity, what happens? We become pancakes. Not enough gravity, what happens? We become space goop, right? And so the, 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 the gravitational force is determined by this gravitational constant. So if you could imagine, like, like if there's a range in which that gravitational constant needs to exist for it to stay functional, imagine like you have a dial and it's set from one to 10, right? And so let's say like it has to exist between seven and eight. So it's like one out of t one and 10th is where that dial needs to be. And if you were to adjust that dial just to the little bit or more, you'd be a pancake or space group, right? Does that make sense? So here's the thing about the dial. It's, it's not one in 10, that dial has to be set to one in 10 to the 60th. Don't touch the dial. <laughs> like, like, don't bump it. Like, because if we mess with the dial, we're pancakes or we're goop. Here's another one. It's called the cosmological constant. And this is the, 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 the force that determines the expansion rate of the universe. And so our best model of understanding the universe is that we are in what's called an expanding universe. So the universe is in the shift of expansion. So if we could reverse the clock, you could bring it all back together to a singular point. And so the, the prevailing model, scientifically speaking, is called the Big Bang Theory, that once upon a time, bang, and the universe began to expand and go. That's not in opposition to faith, by the way, because you read in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. beginning, God said, let there be light. I imagine that must have been a brilliant explosion that started it all. Oh, how cool is that? But that, 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 you know, that cosmological constant determines the rate of expansion of our universe. And so if that dial is, is adjusted wrong, either, either it's too weak and the, the, the universe would have just collapsed back on itself, or it would have expanded so fast that stars couldn't have formed and we kind of need sunshine, right? Vitamin D is kind of important to life. And so that dial, you know what the, the range of that dial is? One in 10 to the 120th. So if it's like, don't touch the gravitational constant, don't even look at the cosmological constant. You might bump it. And so these are some of the things that we've discovered. It's not just that we've discovered these things exist. It's that they exist at a finely tuned state. And so in the last half century or so, there have been people that have been working on this stuff and saying like, hey, I think maybe there's an emerging theory that we should pursue. And the theory is called this intelligent design theory. And so if you were here at our, our uh, apologetics things this past summer, uh, the last night we had Dr. Douglas Axe come and just talk a little bit about this. And so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this because I'm neither an expert nor do we have time. We have other ground to, to tackle. But it's a fascinating thing when you take a look at this. And there on your message notes, there's this QR code. And if you scan that, it'll take you to a document that's got some information from a gentleman named Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, who's one of the leading champions in thinking of intelligent design theory. And there's a, a bunch of his books. There's his website, the Discovery Institute. You'll also find some information about Douglas Axe, who is there. And then at the bottom of that page, I put a link to a YouTube podcast that I just watched this week. It just came out this week. And this was a fascinating podcast because it's a podcast put on by a guy named Dr. Brian Keating, who's a Jewish agnostic cosmologist. But he's interviewing Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. It's a 90-minute podcast, and they're just talking through the stuff, and it's fascinating to hear them talk about it. And like Brian's just asking these good questions, and Stephen is just graciously answering, and he's causing this guy to think. It's a brilliant thing. Here's the, here's the challenge in our cultural bias. Many people scoff at the idea because they say, you're just invoking God. This isn't science, you're bringing religion in the equation. That's actually not the claim that's being made by intelligent design. Intelligent design theory is simply saying, here's its hypothesis, the best explanation to what we're discovering about the universe is intelligence, not random accident. Now, if you're a naturalist, that is uncomfortable because it has implications. 
I love this, I'm going to read a very long quote here by a, a, a scientist named Paul Davies, who's not Christian, but he's wrestling with the implications of this. And just, I want you to capture as he's, he's writing about this, if you get a sense of like, oh no, as he's talking. So Paul Davies says this, there on the screens, he says, scientists are slowly waking up to an inconvenient truth. The universe looks suspiciously like a fix. And the issue concerns the very laws of nature themselves. For 40 years, physicists and cosmologists have been quietly collecting examples of all too convenient coincidences and special features in the underlying laws of the universe that seem to be necessary in order for life and hence, hence conscious beings to exist. Change any one of them and the consequences would be lethal. Fred Hoyle, the distinguished cosmologist, once said, it was as if a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Huh, imagine that. <laughs> he goes on, to see the problem, because for him this is problematic, <laughs> imagine playing God with the cosmos. Before you is a designer machine that lets you tinker with the basics of physics. Twiddle this knob and you make all electrons a bit lighter. Twiddle that one and you make gravity a bit stronger and so on. It happens you need to set 30-something knobs to fully describe the world around us. The crucial point is that some of these metaphorical knobs must be tuned very precisely or the universe would be sterile. Example, neutrons are just a tad heavier than protons. If it were the other way around, atoms couldn't exist because all the protons in the universe would have decayed into neutrons shortly after the Big Bang. No protons, then no atomic nucleuses, and no atoms. No atoms, no chemistry, no life. Like baby bear's porridge in the story of Goldilocks, the universe seems to be just right for life. And that's very inconvenient if you're a scientist committed to naturalism. But if you're open to the possibility of more, interesting. And I love, like, this isn't like just like this new discovery. I mean, we just, like, Paul's even pointing to this back in Romans. But there have been scientists who were deep, people of faith that have also brought this together. So centuries ago, Isaac Newton just put it like this. Gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. Oh, way more succinct, thank you. <laughs> and so the question is, who did the tuning? See, because Legos do not come together into castles by themselves. And even if they did, you still have to explain where did the Legos come from? And it's not Amazon Prime, right? Like, like there has to be something that caused them. And so like really quick, just a little sidebar here on this point. Um, it's fascinating when you see science fiction suddenly gain street cred in, in, in real life conversations. And so like there's this, all this talk right now about the multiverse. And what's fascinating about this is like, hey, that was cool for the Avengers. It also ruined the franchise because now they can do whatever they want, right? But, but like what was cool for the Avengers is actually becoming kind of vogue in like scientific conversations right? because there's this desperate desire to find an explanation that doesn't involve intelligence. And so they're chasing after this. And so here's what's cool. If we apply good science to this theory, hey, we may find out that this is how our universe came into existence. It was because of a multiverse that birthed our universe. So then we just push the question back. Cool, who tuned the multiverse. Like, so all it does is push it back one thing. We still need to explain where it came from. And the more science advances our understanding of how the universe works, the more confidence we gain or discomfort in understanding the necessity of a causal agent. So this is why Paul says God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, his eternal power. But he talks about another quality. So there, answer blowing in the wind, God's divine nature. Let's unpack this one. So if the universe is like a macro view of reality that begs for an explanation, we are a part of that universe. And if we kind of pull in close and look at ourselves, we're kind of like a micro view that also needs an explanation, like beyond your mama, right? Like we need an explanation for us, how we are, where we came from, why we exist. And so if the, if the biblical message is true, that God created us uniquely, did something unique in all of creation with us, created us in his image so that we would be like him, it would stand to reason that we would be people who would reflect his glory in the world. And even though we're broken and falling, fallen, maybe there's remnants of that echo in us that scream for an explanation for who made us. And so as we wrestle with this, this idea of God's divine nature, here's a question to wrestle with. 
Where does our sense of oughtness come from? And here's what I mean. It's like we've all got a sense of right and wrong. We all do. Now, we may not all agree on what is right and wrong, but we all draw moral lines at some point in our life. And here's how I know you draw moral lines. When someone violates your sense of right and wrong, you cry foul, right? So like if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I'm like, oh no, you don't. Because it evokes something in me, right? But, but that's, just, that's, a, that's an easy example. But when you actually do something that is truly harmful or wrong to me, something inside of me rises up and says, no, that's wrong. How do we make sense of this? Like what is that? What's the best explanation? So here's some possible options as we chase this. The first possible option to our sense of oughtness is, well, that's just our personal preferences, right? So what you feel about right and wrong is your truth, and that's just your personal preference. And I have my own personal preferences about what's right and wrong, but I'm not so sure about that. And here's why. I believe that murder is wrong and not simply because I find it inconvenient. Like if you're coming after me and you're trying to kill me, my response isn't gonna be like, hey, don't impose your truth on me. Like my response isn't gonna be like, hey, this is actually really inconvenient for me. I've got plans, I've got places to go. I'd really prefer if you didn't. Like if you're coming after me to murder me, like I'm, I'm, gonna, like I'm gonna fight or run. I'm getting on the phone and I'm calling 911. And my expectation is when the 911 operator comes on the line that they don't say this. Well, sir, who are you to impose your moral values and beliefs on that other person? Like, you should just let them kill you. Like, no, I'm, like, I'm expecting the 911 operator to say, help is on the way. We are sending law enforcement who will impose a moral law on the person trying to kill you. Thank you, please come save me. Right? Like, that's what I expect. So I don't think it's just personal preferences. But then we might take that idea and say, like, well, then maybe this is another explanation, that, that our sense of oughtness, it's just a social convention. And so our, our agreement upon what is right or wrong is more of a social contract. And so the reason the 911 operator will send help is because as a society, we have come to the conclusion that it's better not to murder. That's actually what's better for our society. But who's to say another society may have a different set of beliefs or values? Okay. <laughs> What? Like, let's, let's, just, let's just say, like, is it possible then to ask the question, then who gets to decide what's best? And then how do we determine if there's a better or not as good option? Right, so if you were to take two societies that are embracing radically different values, is it possible to make a moral judgment between the two? Were the Nazis wrong? Or were they just deciding what they thought was best for their society? If you intuitively say that was wrong, and that would be wrong for anyone at any time to do the Holocaust, then you're already resonating the fact that, hey, this is more than just social convention. There's something that we're trying to discern that is true, that is right and wrong. And so maybe the best explanation about our, where our sense of oughtness comes from is that there is actual right and wrong. And our sense of oughtness is like our innate moral compass, trying to make sense of it. And so where does this come from? And here's the interesting thing. Science cannot explain this naturalistically. Science can't give us the answer because morality is something deeper than just what we observe in nature. Like, like science can help us understand things, but it can't help us explain this. Do you realize that you have never observed morality in your life? You have only observed behavior and then you put a moral judgment on that behavior. Why do we do that? Let me ask you this. Do you ever make moral judgments about animal behavior? Like, like when you're watching Discovery Channel and you're seeing the lion hunting and it's, just, it's about to take down the gazelle, are you like, that's murder? Call 911. Like, no, you're like, I mean, that sucks for the gazelle, but that's nature red in tooth and claw. That's just how the world works. So why do we make moral judgments about human behavior? Aren't we just highly evolved animals? Is, are we not just prowling on the... Like, 
No, because isn't there something in us that understands that we are more than that? And because we are more than that, we're called to something higher than that. And let me tell you, the day we stop believing that is the day our world becomes really dark. Our oughtness points to a source for our morality that is beyond nature. And whatever that is has to be good, otherwise we wouldn't care about trying to be good. And so Paul, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, his divine nature. Just you know, like this is something that, that the scriptures speak about multiple times. Psalms 19, there on your notes, one through four. I love how this ancient poet captures it. I love when you have good poetry, good artists, because they capture reality in beautiful ways. And so Psalms 19, it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices go out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Like what a beautiful reality that as we look around this world, it points to something greater. It points to someone greater. And so now we come back to the point that Paul's making. That God can be seen, that God's invisible qualities can be understood so that what? What's the implications? What does he say at the end of verse 20? So that we are without excuse. That means that no one gets to say, I didn't know. And that's heavy. There's implications. And so let's wrestle with that. I want to wrestle with this by asking you a couple of questions. And here's the first question, and I believe it's the right question, but I wrestled with how do I ask you this question out loud because tone matters with this question. So here's the question. Who do you think you are? (laughs) See the dilemma in how I tried that? (laughs) And yet this is an important question to wrestle with, right? Because it's important that we view ourselves correctly because otherwise we can come up with some weird ideas about ourselves. Like, do you know anyone that just has weird ideas about themselves? Don't point, but do you know anyone? (laughs) And the reason why, if we don't get this right, it's also dangerous, because if we view ourselves incorrectly, we will reject the truth, and we will miss the offer that's on the table. And so here's some, I think, maybe popular options to how we might answer the question, hey, who do you think you are? I think oftentimes we'll say this, hey, I get what we're saying about the wickedness and, and those people. I get what we're saying about them, but I'm a good person. Cool. I mean, I, I don't know you, but I'm sure if we were hanging out over Starbucks, they'd be like, yeah, you seem like a really good person. I mean, we'll see if we want to be friends. You know, there's a lot to do with that. But like, yeah, you seem you're good, like you're a good person. But I, I guess my question is like, okay, but like, how good are you? Like, like and, and then who's defining good enough? Because it seems like when we say I'm a good person, we're doing it in comparison to them, whoever they are. And so what that would mean then is like I'm trying to compare my goodness to you or to someone else. Let me tell you, we could make it really awkward here right now if we wanted to just like, hey, everyone, we're just going to get real honest, a list, everything you've done wrong. And we're just going to now line up and we're going to compare ourselves. And some of us are going to be way over here. Thank you, because the rest of us are going to be over here and we're going to feel really good about ourselves. Like, but like, are we really measuring our goodness? Are we meant to measure our goodness to one another? Or are we meant to measure our goodness to the one we are created to be like? Because when I measure my goodness to God, I'm like, oh, yeah, am I good enough? So maybe we, we, we back off a little bit from that and we're like, okay, I get it. Like, so here's another way we try to answer the who am I question. Like, so listen, I'm, I am a broken person. I've got issues. But I'm a broken person with good intentions. Again, I, I don't fault that, but like, As we press into that broken question, I guess the question to ask to that is like, well, then who's to blame for the brokenness? Because what we oftentimes like to say, well, it was my parents, it's my spouse, it's my kids. And some of us have been victims for sure. There's hurt in our story. But at some point in our story, we have to take responsibility for our lives. So who's to blame for the ongoing brokenness in your story? And see, what's interesting about both of these is that we will often use these, I'm a good person or I'm a broken person, to justify ourselves. 
And we'll use these as excuses. So I'm a good person. I don't need to worry. That's really just a way of asserting my own righteousness. And a person who is asserting their own righteousness is somebody we call being self-righteous. And that's not just a religious problem. That's a human problem. But then if I'm in the I'm broken, it's not my fault, that's a way of trying to excuse myself from any culpability. I'm only the victim in the story. I've done nothing wrong. And yet maybe there's another way to answer the question, who am I? It's heavier, but maybe it's the right answer. I'm a sinner who needs rescue. And there's something beautifully good news for us, for people like us who can say that. I love what Jesus says here in Mark 2.17. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd, and the right crowd comes, and they're giving Jesus grief. Like, why are you hanging out with those people, Jesus? And Jesus' response was this. Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come, come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the danger in justifying ourselves, hey, I'm, I'm good, or I'm just broken, is this is what we're ultimately communicating to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I don't really need you. Here's my card, my get-out-of-jail card. And see, this is why Jesus says in his, his famous teaching, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about the blessed life, the very first thing he says about the person who is blessed is this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, blessed are those who realize there's something wrong and they need help. And you know why they're blessed? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because they're the ones that recognize, I need help to be returned to who I was meant to be. And so as I wrestled with this question in my own life, hey Joel, who do you think you are? Like here's here's where I've just come to. Like I am a man who desires to do good, but I fail time and time again. I, I, I am a man who is broken. There are wounds in my life and there is a limp in my story because of what they have done to me, but I am not just a victim because there are others in this world who have wounds in their life and limp because of what I have done to them. There is something deeply bent about me. But then Jesus shows up and in him I discover something even deeper. There is a hope about who I am because of who he is. As he is doing a work in my story. So Paul writes these words in Romans 5. We will get to Romans 5 probably in three years, but we'll get there. This is a preview of coming attractions, but look at what he says. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like at my worst, I am loved. And in Christ, I am being rescued. I am being restored. I am being made new. And see, if we don't view ourselves accurately, we'll miss the reality of our situation and miss the offer that's on the table. And so now let me ask another question as we're wrestling with this. What are you doing with the truth you have? Because let's not pretend we have it all figured out, we know everything, but what are you doing with what you do know? What are you doing with the truth that you do have? Are you suppressing what you know? Or are you responding? If you're here for that last night of our apologetic summer, uh, Dr. Axe was referring to like a, a colleague he knows in, in the world who's, who's not a believer, very, very devout atheist, and he was saying it's really fascinating because this guy says he doesn't want there to be a God. And I was like, that. I, was like I, wanna, I wanna hear that. So I found the quote. So this is what this atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel says. So think about this in the context of suppressing the truth. Thomas Nagel says this. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Wow. And you look at that and you're like, okay, I think that's maybe an obvious example. But as we're wrestling with this question in our own stories, 
I think oftentimes what we will try to do, what, what am I doing with the truth I have? We'll try to dodge the implication of that truth in our own story by trying to point to something else. And so here's, a, here's one that we oftentimes do. We'll try to suppress the truth, dodge the issue, and we'll ask the question, yeah, 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 but what about them? Whoever they are, what about them? The, the ones that, that are like living on the part of the planet, they haven't heard about Jesus. Or what about the people I care about that just aren't responding to him? What about them? And let me say, that is a genuine question. That is a question to wrestle with for sure. But here's what we can know, at least in this moment. We can trust that God is good, which means that no one will be judged unjustly. But there's still judgment. And we wrestle with that. But listen, not liking this is a poor excuse to remove yourself from the equation. Like, like if we're stepping into this life that Jesus has for us and he calls us to join him in this mission, this gospel that is saving our story, and he's like, hey, now join me in the mission. That's the great commission. Go and make, right? And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of questions about like, hey, Jesus, why did you choose us? Seems like it would just be better if you did it. You seem a lot better at it, but somehow you choose us and, and I don't always feel effective and it seems like I'll talk to people and they're like, eh, and they'll run away and I'm like, like, I don't like, I think you could do it better. And because we wrestle with the questions that we don't always know what to do with, we can dismiss ourselves from stepping into things that we're called to. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses this analogy of, of a gardener to kind of paint this picture. Like, like how it, it's, just, it's not a good idea to just say, God, I don't like it, so I'm out, if we're trying to actually help God advance the mission. So he's like, imagine a gardener who invites you to come and garden with him in his garden. And so he, he's, he's done something cool and he's teaching you the ropes and he's showing you the trade and then you get into the garden with him and you're like, I don't really like how he's doing the gardening. So what are your options? Forget it, I'm not gardening anymore. See, so it's like, like you're not gonna help the gardener be a better gardener if you cut off his finger. Like you gotta join in the gardening and you gotta step into it even as you're wrestling with it. And see, as we think about this idea, like, like uh, what about them? That is a valid question, but please pay attention right now. The question being asked isn't what are they doing with the truth they have. The question being asked is, what are you doing? And maybe if we want to help them, we need to start responding to the truth so we actually have something of substance to show them. And so we need to be careful that we don't let our wrestling become a smokescreen to dodge the issue and miss the offer because there is hope in the story. There is an offer on the table of new life, and it's being offered to all of us. There's this beautiful conversation that we see in the life of Jesus in John 3. In John 3, we, we see this, this religious leader, a guy named Nicodemus. He was one of the Pharisees, and he's really taken with Jesus, but he's confused with Jesus. And, and so he comes to meet with Jesus at nighttime, which I love that. He's like, I, I don't know if you're good for my street cred. <laughs> So can we just meet at night because I have some questions? And I love just like Nicodemus come. If you've watched, um, oh gosh, what's the TV show that's out? Oh wow, some fan, The Chosen. Like, like I think they've done a really good job of depicting this character. And so here's Nicodemus coming and they're having these deep theological conversations and Jesus is saying some stuff like, you gotta be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's like, how? And he's like, I'm talking about a spiritual reality. And, and he's like, Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher. You don't know this stuff. Like, come on, man. And so out of this conversation flows what is quite possibly the most quoted, most famous, most popular verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. Out of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus flows this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's the offer that's on the table, but we've got to face the full picture because it doesn't stop at verse 16. John continues the flow of thought, and he goes on. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. How are you responding to the truth that you do know, 
Because as we respond to that, we step more fully into the light of life that he has for us. And the offer on the table is the gospel, it's the good news, but we have to take it seriously. We have to step fully into that light. Paul will write about this in Ephesians 2. He says these words. He's like, hey, once upon a time, you were dead in your sin and transgressions. That's a bad place to be. To be dead is not good. But he goes on and he says, but because of his mercy, because of his love for us, God has made us alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why we follow him. That's why we worship him. That's why we praise him. Because he's the one who is bringing us out of death into life. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And that's what we celebrate every time we declare Jesus' name in this place. That you have found me. I was lost, but now I'm found. You have changed my story. I was broken, you're making me new. I was in darkness, now you're bringing me into light. And Jesus, even as I wrestle with you today, I don't wanna stop wrestling because in the wrestling, you lead me more fully into life. And so we crown you Lord, because that is who you are. And we follow you because you are the one who's leading us into life. And so let's declare this together in this place as we sing this song. Let's make this song our declaration of our gratitude, of our praise, of our thankfulness, and of saying, you are Lord and we will follow you because you are good and we trust you. So Lord, here in this place we come as we wrestle with the heavy things. Thank you that you are not afraid of the wrestling. Thank you that you are not one who steps back. You are the one who steps in. So don't let us step back. Let us step in. And in that wrestling with you, discover that you are good and we can trust you. Even when it's difficult and it doesn't make sense, that you are always ever worth it. And so may we learn to surrender, not that we lose life, but surrender that we find the new life in you. And so here in this place, we want to declare you are Lord, you are King, we crown you. Amen.